So last week we started a new series of sermons on the book of Daniel, and the main idea in Daniel is about the believer interacting with a pagan culture. And I uh, suggested that the best paradigm for us to use for our culture today and for the church living in our culture today is this paradigm of being in exile. Just as uh, Jewish people were taken into exile by the Babylonians, so we find ourselves in the midst of a, a pagan and hostile in some ways, but certainly indifferent to the gospel culture. So our challenge today, as it was in Daniel's time, is to figure out how to remain faithful while living in exile. We need to learn to function, to live biculturally, as people with two names, like Daniel and his friends, were living. We need to figure out how to live faithfully in exile. And so as an aside, I want to say that if you are part of a minority in a majority culture, so for example, I am an immigrant, I'm part of a minority in a majority culture, right? If you're part of an ethnic or a racial minority, if you're part of an economic minority in a larger majority culture, you have a lot to teach the rest of the church. You've lived on the margins, you've lived in, in exile in many ways, and so your experience is very valuable to the, the larger church, especially right now. And if you're part of the majority culture, and you've always you've enjoyed life with a lot of cultural influence and power, talk to minorities, talk to people, talk to other brothers and sisters, even in our own church, but not limited to our church, those who have lived on the margins, and ask them, what is it like to be faithful in exile? What is it like to live in a majority, majority culture that has all the power and you are trying to fit into that? Because that's going to be more and more our experience as Christians, and I think we have a lot to learn from our brothers and sisters who have lived in minority uh, cultures. So I encourage you to do that. Today we're looking at uh, chapter 2 of Daniel, still the same theme of how to live in exile, but we're looking at Daniel's interaction with the king and his correct interpretation of the king's disturbing dream. And then finally, his promotion in the royal administration that allows Daniel to engage even more to a deeper degree with the Babylonian culture. And so our outline is three points today. We will consider distressed dreamers, distressed dreamers like Nebuchadnezzar. Secondly, we'll listen to the wise words spoken by Daniel to explain the king's and our anxiety. And finally, we will look at the royal rock of God's kingdom and the challenge it presents to us today. By royal rock, I don't mean a genre of rock music. I just mean the, the kingdom of God breaking in. So um, there's probably a genre. Queen is probably involved in royal rock. All right, let's look at uh, distressed dreamers first. Our, our chapter begins... In somewhat of, I think, a startling way with a troubled king. Now, this is Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the emperor of Babylon, who is not even, without question, he is the most powerful single person in the world at the time. And yet, he is not at peace. He keeps having these dreams that wake him up at night, and then he can't go back to sleep, these, these troubling dreams. And so he summons all his magicians, enchanters, astrologers, 
uh, what they're called Chaldeans, so part of that Chaldean magic culture. These are professionals. You know, these are people that are employed by the king to interpret dreams, to, to help figure out these fears and make good decisions. So he comes to them, and he wants them to help him figure out what bothers him, what troubles him, and how to solve that problem that he keeps dreaming about. And this is the context of Daniel's involvement. Remember, Daniel is, is one of those magicians. He's been trained in that culture, and now he occupies a position of influence, not a great influence, but some influence as one of those royal employees. And so Daniel gets a chance to talk to the king, in fact, to share God's wisdom with the king because the king is troubled, because there's something in the king's life that doesn't let him sleep. And so the king is searching for wisdom. He's searching for the interpretation of this dream, and this is the opportunity that Daniel takes. Now, this is how it applies to us. As exiles in our culture, the culture that is indifferent at best, but often even hostile towards God, we need to learn to take such opportunities. We don't have many opportunities, but these are the opportunities we need to take. When a culture is in crisis, when people are struggling, when they are overwhelmed with fears and anxieties, we need to step in. So when people around us experience these moments of distress or confusion or fear or even seasons of distress, confusion, and fear, when our culture goes through a nightmare, some sort of a national event, we Christians have unique opportunities to speak to that, even as Daniel does in our passage. The 9-11 terrorist attacks were, without question, a national nightmare. And many Americans were deeply troubled, deeply troubled. On Sunday, the Sunday following 9-11, so September 16th, the churches were flooded with visitors. I wasn't here in this church at the time. I don't know what happened, but if, if churches in large cities are any indication, many churches were flooded with new people. Atheists, skeptics, seekers, uh, sometimes even people of other religions that were seeking some sort of explanation to what happened. Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City had almost twice as many in attendance that Sunday than they usually had. So literally, uh, two, I think two or 3,000 more people showed up to church that Sunday. They had to add another service spontaneously because they couldn't fit everybody. So they just announced, after this service is over, we're going to have another one to accommodate everybody who's waiting. Now, particularly relevant in New York, of course, but, but lots of churches experienced a very similar phenomenon. People flooding churches looking for some sort of explanation. And so Tim Keller, the pastor of the church at the time, was able to preach to, to hundreds of, if not thousands, of unbelievers helping them process their pain and, and their confusion and pointing them to Christ. This is how Keller describes that period of ministry. He says, For the following year, ministry was just intense. Every meeting and service had more emotion and tears in it than usual. A good number of people started coming to Redeemer after 9-11 and found Christ. 
evangelism was fruitful. Now, we live in a culture that is designed to distract us from asking big questions, from really dealing with our fears, from wrestling with the disturbing realities of life. Most people in our culture live their lives preferring not to think about anything that might trouble them. Have you thought about that? Our culture is designed to prevent us from engaging in these disturbing questions. I find personally, and maybe you have found the same, that that when you share the gospel with an unbeliever, most likely it is met with sort of this apathy, the passionless indifference. They're not necessarily opposed to it, they just don't care. The questions that we as Christians bring up when we share the gospel are often not the questions that people are thinking about. And so for us, when we think you can find meaning for your life in the gospel, they may not have even been asking the question, what does my life mean? You know, We're dealing with a culture that is designed to, to deceive us and distract us from engaging with these realities. But nightmares have a tendency to break through that kind of distraction and deception. When you have a nightmare, it changes you. You just you can't stop thinking about it. I mean, think about what God is doing with King Nebuchadnezzar. I'm sure he had many distractions. I'm sure he had many entertainment options. I'm sure he had many people who were speaking false, falsehood into his life. And yet, when he's asleep on his own, right, unable to control his thoughts, God breaks in. And God speaks to him. God gives him a vision that he can't shake. And this is where Daniel comes in to interpret that. That's what happens with us. And, and of course, it works on, on, on a personal level. When somebody in your life is really struggling, when they're going through cancer, for example, yeah, they're, they're likely to be more open to the gospel because that cancer has shaken them and, and now they, they have to deal with issues of life and death. They have to deal with issues of meaning. And what is, what is my life worth? I mean, those kind of questions naturally come up when you can no longer distract yourself from thinking about them. So Christians have a unique opportunity at that point to come in and share the hope that we have and explain what's happening to them. So use those opportunities, but it also works on a cultural level too, like it did after 9-11. We get to speak to our culture about its anxieties and fears. Now, what are the current cultural nightmares? It's a great question for a Christian to ask. What is our culture? What are people around us? What are they losing sleep over? What bad dreams do they get that they just, they just can't, can't shake? What troubles our society today? Because it's different. Different generations deal with different issues. Now, here are some ideas that I'll give you. There are many more, but, but these that, that, that came to my mind as I, as I considered that question. Is the current conversation about gender and sexuality, which is charged with so much confusion and anxiety and pain, is that an opportunity for Christians to speak? It's a crisis, no question. Our culture doesn't know what to do with it. Is it an opportunity for us to step in and and, and speak God's wisdom to those very painful situations? Is the increase in polarization and division along partisan lines in politics an opportunity 
for Christians to speak. Our culture is divided and, and, and is becoming more and more, those two camps are becoming more and more opposed to one another. They're not talking to each other anymore. Is that an opportunity for a Christian to come in and explain what's happening and give hope for unity? Is the cultural crisis surrounding systemic injustices, especially as it relates to racial and ethnic minorities in the culture, is that an opportunity for Christians to speak and to bring a unique perspective from God's Word onto those very, very complicated situations? I think we need to be deeply engaged with these topics in our preaching, in our writing, in our conversations, in our research, in our art. I mean, I think the church has a responsibility to speak on these issues as opportunities arise, just like Daniel does. This is a unique, unique opportunity for Daniel to speak to the king himself about the king's anxieties and give him the hope of the gospel. Now, Daniel is a great example of how a Christian can do that. How a Christian can speak to a distressed dreamer. Now, we can do it badly. Let me just preface it by saying that. As I'm telling you to speak and take these opportunities, I'm also going to nuance it by saying, do it well. Okay? Do it well. The point is not just to communicate truth, but it's also to do it in a way that the truth connects with the person or with the culture. And Daniel gives us a good example of how to do it well. So look at verse 30, for example. There's a lot we can say about his attitude and his character and how he takes opportunities, but verse 30 stands out for me. As for me, Daniel says, this mystery has been revealed to me not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. So first notice humility. We can't proclaim the truth arrogantly. Even if you know the truth, that doesn't give you the right to be arrogant about it. Because why do you know the truth? It's been revealed to you. You didn't come up with that. You're not smarter than anybody else. You've been given that revelation. And that's what Daniel Daniel's saying. I'm going to give you the interpretation, the dream and the interpretation of your dream. Not because I'm wiser than, than anybody else among your, your employees. It's just because God has revealed it to me, and I get to share it with you. Humility. Very important. Very important. I, I think everyone's computer screen or your, your smartphone screen has, has to have a sticky note on it that just says humility in large letters, and you can't type anything until you take that off. Just to give us a filter, because so many of us struggle with that. We feel like, I know the truth, and I'm just going to blast them with the truth. You can't do that. Daniel doesn't do that. Doesn't do that. We come in humility because we're just like everybody else, but we've been given that revelation. We've been given that wisdom from above, and we get to use it for the benefit of others. But secondly, notice what Daniel says one of the goals of his interaction with the king is. Daniel shares God's truth with Nebuchadnezzar, so that Nebuchadnezzar may know the thoughts of his mind. So he's saying, I will, I will give you the interpretation of the dream, and God has given you this interpretation, so that you may know the thoughts of your own mind. In other words, 
Daniel gets to help the king discover what fears and anxieties lie behind the nightmare. He goes deeper than just the dream itself. It's interesting that Nebuchadnezzar, when he wants his troubling dream explained, he calls in all the enchanters and magicians, and he tells them, tell me the interpretation, but before you do that, tell me what the dream is. Now, some scholars say it's because Nebuchadnezzar forgot his own dream. That happens. I've dealt with that. You wake up frustrated and you can't remember what you're frustrated about. Maybe that's the case. Or maybe Nebuchadnezzar really wants to make sure that the person who explains the dream has, has a different source of knowledge, that they really understand what they're talking about so they can get behind the dream itself and explain the anxieties that lie behind it. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar may not only be asking for answers, he may also be asking for the right questions to be asked. Now, this is what a Christian can do. We can get behind the nightmare, and we can uncover what lies underneath it and say, I will explain what's happening to you, and I will tell you how it connects with much deeper fears that you have before I give you the solution. We as Christians... Through the wisdom of God, we get to help people understand the thoughts of their own minds. Because if you're not a believer and if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you you are very confused. And we can see that in our culture. Contradictory ideas are being held up at the same time. How can that be? Well, unbelievers are confused. They don't have the same guide that we have. They don't have the same truth that we have. And so we can come in and very strategically and very intentionally say, let me, let me help you understand what's happening in your own mind. Let me help you understand what's happening in your own heart. Because we have that kind of source of supernatural wisdom. Daniel not only provided the answers to the king, he was able to discover the questions. And we'll deal with that a little bit when we look at the dream itself. But when we address these hot topic issues in our culture, these controversial issues in our culture. We need to get behind, get to the underlying things that cause those issues to become controversial. So for example, if we address issues of sexuality and gender, we need to get to the underlying confusion about our human identity. That's underneath it. What does it mean to be human? What makes me, me? Now that's, the, that's one of the questions that lies behind these decisions that we make about our sexuality and gender identity. We need to recognize the pain of being rejected. A lot of times people are pursuing a particular sexual lifestyle or a particular affiliation, uh, gender affiliation, because they want to be accepted. They want to be affirmed. There's a fear of, of loneliness. There's a fear of not being seen by others. Do you see how the issue isn't just about who you sleep with? But it goes so much deeper than that. And Christians are uniquely positioned to be able to explain that. To be able to say these are the reasons, these are the causes, these are the fears underneath. And we can work through that with God's help. When we address divisive politics, 
we must also talk about the anxiety of being forgotten by those in power. Part of the division we're experiencing is, is because both camps feel forgotten by power. Now, we have to get to that level. We, we need to talk about the feeling of being betrayed by politicians if we are to figure out how to navigate this. When we address issues of, of social injustice, we must talk about the basis for human dignity. Our culture doesn't have that. They don't have the basis. They don't, they don't understand the intrinsic value of a human being. It's simply a social construct at best for them. For us, oh, there's something much bigger at play, and we get to bring that to the culture and share it with them. We need to talk about the right use of power. What is power for in society? How is it supposed to be used? I mean, these are much bigger issues, and they, they tap into much deeper fears and anxieties. But do you see how the right questions, once raised, might lead to the right answers? So what I'm calling for, most of, most of us are Christians here, I'm calling for us to be engaged in the culture, especially in times of crisis, especially on controversial topics. But I'm also calling for wisdom and humility and a deep interaction and a deep engagement, not superficial, this is right and this is wrong, that's fine, but you got to go deeper than that. Christianity has a unique voice in a pagan culture. Nobody else has a voice like ours. Nobody else has resources like we do. And we need to take these opportunities and speak to the culture on these issues. When we recognize a cultural nightmare, we are the people to interpret that. We are the people to find the questions and answers that people are dealing with. Okay, so let's see how Daniel actually begins to do that with the king. Nebuchadnezzar, I think, is searching for that. He's disturbed by his nightmare, deeply troubled, and so he turns to the professionals in his court for help. And of course, these wizards of Waverly Place have nothing, they have nothing to say. One uh, commentator describes, describes it this way. He says, the wisdom of the world, which is what... Nebuchadnezzar is turning towards. The wisdom of the world looks outwardly very impressive with its qualifications and influence in high places in our society. Yet at root, the wisdom of the world is always an empty sham. It neither understands the true nature of humanity, nor the true nature of the world in which we live, nor can it when it denies the existence or ignores the relevance of the one true God who created and controls all things. Now, yes, we can go to experts. We can go to a lot of people who are considered to be wise. And they have the credentials and they have the position of influence. This is what the king does. And what does he find? They can't help him. They can't help him. They complain in verse 11. They complain... The thing that the king asks is difficult. And no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. They acknowledge that a supernatural, divine kind of wisdom is needed here. Not only to, to guess at the interpretation, but to tell him his dream, to tell him the anxieties of his heart. They're saying, we, we, we can't do that. Only the gods can do that. Only... Some supernatural being from outside can do that. 
Somebody with much more wisdom and power than, than we have. But they don't dwell with the flesh. They don't walk among us. They are not here to help us. But Daniel and his friends know a God who walks among us. They know a God who lives with the flesh. A God who speaks to us. A God who gives us his wisdom. This is a an incredible advantage to have when you're trying to interpret the culture's anxieties and fears and give them hope. Verse 28, Daniel says, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. I mean, what what an affirming statement. Daniel says, we know a God. We know someone who, though he lives in heaven, though he is an all-powerful, all-knowing God, He reveals mysteries to us. He speaks to us. We know his voice. We know his words. And we can ask him and he will reveal to us what the king's dream is and what the interpretation is. Now the enchanters and the musicians, the magicians say, only the gods can reveal mysteries and they don't talk to us. But Daniel says, our God talks to us. Our God reveals mysteries to us. Daniel says we have access to wisdom from above, to God's perspective. We can interpret the king's fears from the point of view of God himself. What an advantage we have. I imagine anybody comes to you with a problem and you say, hold on, I know a God in heaven who reveals mysteries He can help us understand what you're dealing with. He can give us the interpretation for your life. This is an amazing thing. And all of us have that. All Christians have that access. We all have the ability to speak from God's word into situation. We all have the Holy Spirit. We all have the gospel to inform us. Every Christian has that ability to, to come to a distressed dreamer and tell them what God thinks of them. Amazing. I remember when I was in college, and as many college students, you know, you go through, through a stage of being exposed to all these tremendous ideas, and you're trying to figure out how to make sense of any of them as a Christian. And I remember being exposed to postmodernism and the idea that everybody has a subjective perspective, that everybody has their own unique view, their own angle to what is true and what isn't true. And I remember getting pretty discouraged and thinking, how can I ever, ever be sure that anything is true? Because there's so many voices in this conversation that everybody has their own unique view. How do I know which one or if any of them are true at all? And I was, remember talking to my, at the time, my mentor, Jim Baker. I'll, I'll, I name names when I talk about mentors because I think it's, it's important to acknowledge people who invested in your life. So Jim Baker was one of my mentors. And and I remember they lived in Skokie. I was going to, to Moody. Jillian and I were at Moody in Chicago, and, and we frequently spent time with the bakers. And I remember walking the streets of Skokie, Illinois. <laughs> this, one's, this one's for you guys. Yeah, they know Skokie. Walking this, the mean streets of Skokie, <laughs> Illinois, talking with Jim and, and just saying, Jim, like, I don't know how to deal with this, these ideas that everybody has their unique perspective on the truth. I'm like, who can figure out, you know, what's true and what isn't? And Jim just very quietly and gently says, God can. 
God has an objective view on all of this. Such a simple truth, right? But to a young believer, wrestling with these ideas, that was so encouraging to me. To say that even though there's this loud conversation happening and all these voices, all these opinions, but above all of that is God who tells us what reality is, who tells us what the right perspective is, who tells us what truth is, and I know him. I know him, and he speaks to me. There's a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, who has an objective, right view of reality. So as Christians, you are interpreters of that reality. You are translators of the truth to the world. You're advisors. You're counselors to the world. You are the true wise people. You are the true pundits and experts because you know God who speaks to you because you have his words recorded in the Bible, because you have the Holy Spirit who will give you a specific guidance, a subjective specific guidance on a situation, because you believe in the gospel, the lens through which all reality is supposed to be seen, you can speak wisdom to people. You can speak wise words to people in our culture and in your life. You know what's real and what's not real. You know what's right and what's wrong what's important and what's not important. You know that because you know God. I mean, this, this is an amazing truth. Live it out. Apply it. Figure out how that applies to you. I wish every news program, which is now largely their panels, right, of, of experts, I wish every news program would have a specific chair for a Christian, for a thoughtful, mature you know, knowledgeable of the Bible, humble, wise Christian. And so as they deal with a cultural event, right, they would say, okay, now we're going to hear from a Washington insider, and then here's a constitutional lawyer, here's an economist, a PhD in, econ- in economics, and now we turn into the Christian who can tell us what it really is. Wouldn't that be wonderful to include that? To have a, a, a Christian expert just, any, just bring any Christian, you know, anybody who knows the scriptures, just tell us, what, tell us, what are we really dealing with here? What fears and anxieties are in our hearts that underpin this issue, that, that make us think a certain way? And what is the solution, according to God's word, to this particular cultural conundrum? Wouldn't that be wonderful to have that kind of platform? We don't, and we won't. For, for a while, we won't. But we do have opportunities to speak the same kind of wisdom into cultural nightmares. So be ready. Be ready. Be prepared and take those opportunities. I'll give you an example of how a Christian can interpret. This is a stark, obvious example, but I think it works to illustrate how we can interpret a cultural reality, what people in the culture say or think and feel in light of the gospel. There was a survey conducted a number of years ago to determine what words Americans would most like to hear? What words Americans would most like to hear? Number one, not surprisingly, I love you. Number one, I love you. Number two, I forgive you. Interesting, right? Number two, I forgive you. And number three, supper is ready. <laughs> so the, three, the three phrases that Americans are most excited about hearing is I love you, I forgive you, and supper's ready. 
do you know who can provide the best analysis of that survey? You can. A Christian who believes in the Bible, a Christian who believes in the gospel. Because behind these answers are fears, fears of loneliness and rejection, anxiety about failure, hope for acceptance and restoration and redemption, longing for relationship, desire for security and stability. Now we know the gospel in which God declares that we are loved, we are forgiven by him by grace, and we are invited to the eternal feast of the Lamb. Do you see the intersection of the cultural fears and anxiety and nightmares and the gospel itself? Now, you are uniquely positioned as a Christian in this culture, as a bicultural Christian, as a Christian with two names, engaged both in the church and in the pagan culture. You're uniquely positioned to speak wisdom to people in the world. Now, let's go quickly to the specifics of Nebuchadnezzar's dream and Daniel's interpretation. Many readers, when you read this passage, get focused on identifying the kingdoms represented in the various parts of the statue, I think it's legitimate, absolutely, to ask that question. And I personally don't see any reason to reject the traditional interpretation of Babylon being the head of gold, uh, Medo-Persia as the chest and arms of silver, the next kingdom, Greece as the middle and thighs of bronze, and then finally Rome as the legs of iron and feet of mixed iron and clay. Now, of course, there's different opinions, and please study it on your own. I think it's worth your time, but don't get too obsessed about that because the, the message of the dream itself is very, very clear. The overall point of the dream is this. All earthly kingdoms, whether it's Greece or Persia or America or Ukraine, we've never had a kingdom, but any other nation, any other empire that you can think of, all earthly kingdoms will eventually fall. They will fall. But there is another kingdom, the only one, that will last forever. That's the point of the dream. Nebuchadnezzar is wrestling with his own legacy, with his own power, his own influence. And God gives him this dream that tells him, your kingdom is not going to last forever. There'll be another one after you, after that, there'll be another one, and then there'll be another one. But then, God's kingdom will break in. And that kingdom is, is never going to go away. And it starts as a rock that shatters the statue. But it grows to be a mountain that fills the whole world. And the challenge of the dream is, for Nebuchadnezzar and for us today, is which kingdom are you embedded in? Which kingdom is your kingdom? Now, I think Nebuchadnezzar misses the point, by the way. I think God is going to have to humble him in chapter 4 to drive the point of this dream home to him, and we'll, we'll deal with that in two weeks. But the point of the dream is very clear. No earthly kingdom will survive, but only God's kingdom will be here forever. So is it your kingdom that matters to you, or is it God's kingdom? Now, the king is troubled. Why? He's afraid of losing his kingdom. He's afraid of losing something that brings him purpose and significance and meaning and joy. 
And so he's afraid to lose that. So his nightmare is, I'm going to lose it. I'm going to lose what matters most to me. What, what are your nightmares about? What are you afraid of losing? Because whatever that is, that is actually your kingdom. That is what you're building. That is what you've embedded yourself in. Are you losing sleep because you think your political party is going to lose power? That's your kingdom. That's what you're committed to. Are you afraid you're going to lose your looks? Lord help you if you're afraid you're going to lose your looks. It's never worked out for anybody. Are you afraid you're going to lose your wealth? Your money? You've been accumulating money all your life. You're afraid you're going to lose that? You can easily lose that. People lose that all the time. How about your health? Maybe it's your health that you're really concerned about and you lose sleep over thinking, what if I get sick? What's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to my family? Are you afraid of losing power? Maybe you're a person of influence and what bothers you, what troubles you is that you're going to lose power. Maybe you're afraid of losing your reputation what people think of you. Whatever that is, that's your kingdom. And God's word tells us that none of that is going to survive. None of that is really going to matter in the end. So the challenge is, are you going to embed yourself even further in that kingdom, in your kingdom that you've been building, or are you going to look towards God's kingdom and say, this is actually my real kingdom. This is the one that's not going to go away. This is the one that's always going to be there, and I want to know the king. Nebuchadnezzar misses the point, but I hope that we don't. I hope that we look at our lives and we look at the statues that we have erected, the brilliant, dazzling statues that nonetheless have feet of clay. All the statues we have built for ourselves will eventually be toppled. It will. It will happen. And so are you ready? Are you ready to, to embrace the real kingdom and the real king? Now, the New Testament is very clear using the metaphor of the rock and applying it to Jesus, saying that the kingdom of God comes through this rock, this, this royal rock, and it first comes in a very humble, unassuming way. I mean, think about Jesus being born on the fringes of the empire, right? By then, Rome rules the world, but Jesus isn't born in Rome. He's born in some forgotten province in Palestine, Nobody even knows that that happened. He grows up. He lives a perfect life. He grows up, and in every point, there's conflict between his kingdom and the kingdom of the world. The Jews are unhappy with him. The Romans are unhappy with him. The Greeks are not happy with him because a new kingdom is breaking in. You see, and it comes first as, as a small rock. It comes as a rock that just starts pushing on the statue. And eventually, the statue is toppled. Eventually, the statue is crushed, and all the kingdoms will disappear. And by that point, this rock will grow into a mountain that will fill the world. And the, all of creation will be ruled by Christ himself. So this rock that, that comes to us, that eventually will become the mountain, what is your relationship to him? When Jesus came and established his kingdom through his suffering, through his death, through his resurrection, through the promise of his return, what do you think about all of that? What do you think you should do with this king? The God who dwelled with the flesh, the God, the God who came to live with us, to speak with us, and to reveal mysteries to us. 
Here are the two challenges we have. Number one, will you continue to create your kingdom or will you receive God's kingdom by grace? That's the first choice. Now remember that as Daniel describes it in this vision, this rod that comes, it's not cut out by human hands. The statue is built by people. Nebuchadnezzar is building the statue. There's craftsmanship involved. But the rock comes from outside. It comes the, it, it's not produced by humanity. It, it comes from someone else. It comes by grace. It comes into our world. And so this is how Jesus comes. The gospel comes by grace. We don't deserve to be forgiven. We don't deserve to be loved. We don't deserve to have a place at the table. And yet we are given that by grace. Not made by us, not by human hands, but it just comes to us. So will you receive the kingdom or will you continue to build your own kingdom? And number two, will Jesus become your cornerstone or will you be crushed by him? Matthew 21, uh, Jesus himself says, this is Matthew 21, 44, and the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. You can either build on Christ as your cornerstone or you will be crushed by him. That's the choice. So what are you going to do? Are you going to keep building your kingdom or are you going to receive God's kingdom by grace? Are you going to have Jesus as your cornerstone or are you going to be crushed by the rock?